said in the past about our church is that we are Baptistic. <clears throat> and I explained the reasons I chose that phrase, Baptistic. Um, I didn't want to um, imply that we belong to a denomination or exist necessarily as an independent Baptist church, which has its own implications. So I've been saying that we're Baptistic, but I'm fearing that that led to confusion in the life of our church. <clears throat> and so what I'm doing in the next, well, last week and the following, this week and next week, is clarifying the fact that we are a Baptist church. So just getting that out right now, this is a Baptist church. <clears throat> and what I want to do is clarify why that is. I want to clarify why we're a Baptist church. Now, as I explained last week, um, what do you mean by Baptist exactly? What I mean simply is that through our reading of Scripture, we come to certain conclusions. And we believe, through our honest reading of Scripture, that the church or the New Covenant community are believers in Jesus Christ and regenerate by the Holy Spirit. We believe also that baptism is an outward sign that testifies to a spiritual reality as ordained by Christ. And we believe that the final court of appeal in the congregation is the members of the church, even as they are led by the elders. If you believe those things, you are a Baptist. That, that's what makes you a Baptist. And maybe you could add a few other things like um, the, the state cannot give entrance into the church, which was a historic Baptist issue. Um, but those three things, especially, the church was a, a regenerate community, baptism is an expression of a spiritual, a present spiritual reality, and congregational authority, as led by the elders, is our church polity. If you believe that, you are a Baptist. If you don't believe those things, then you may not be. You may, you may be, and that's why I want to clarify why we are Baptist in this church. And what we've been focusing on specifically is the issue of um, baptism. The problem with our Presbyterian brothers, our Reformed brothers, Anglican brothers, is that Baptism becomes a very confusing, confusing and complex issue for them. And they speak in such a way that baptism is efficacious for salvation. And we believe that that has dangerous implications and, and may actually give somebody a false sense of security. Let me read, give you an example of what I mean. John Murray, and I think I quoted this to you last week. John Murray, who is a well-respected Presbyterian um, theologian, writes that baptism signifies union with Christ and membership in his body. It means this for both adults and infants. And so in respect of efficacy... Baptism is for infants precisely what it is for adults. Namely, 
the divine testimony to their union with Christ. This is the purpose of baptism as a sign. And what is its purpose as a seal? As a seal, it authenticates, confirms, guarantees the reality and the security of this covenant of grace. Now, I don't know if you caught that, but baptism should be, in his mind, applied to infants. And what it does is it confirms and guarantees the reality of the covenant of grace to that infant. At best, as I said last week, that's confusing. At worst, it implies baptismal regeneration, meaning that baptism is actually what regenerates you. And then we get right back into the problem of the Catholic Church, and we are in the 1500s again. So what I want to do today, last week I focus on the fact that baptism is not what brings somebody into the church or makes somebody part of the New Covenant community regeneration is, the Holy Spirit is. Those who believe are sons of God. And the fulfillment of circumcision is not baptism in Scripture, but circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. So today, I want to move on from the issue of the fact that we believe in a regenerate church to... We, we practice believers' baptism. So that's where we're going. Three things I want to say about believers' baptism. Number one, why it's important. Number two, what it signifies. Number three, who should be baptized. So number one, why is this important? First of all, some of you are thinking, are we not here today? And are, do we not go to service because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And why make, therefore, water the point of emphasis in our church? Why, why is water such an issue in this church? Why not stick with the gospel of Jesus Christ? I understand that... statement. I understand where you're coming from. I want to talk to you specifically right now. You who believes that what I just said would express your concern about where I've been moving in the past week, week and a half, and we'll go to next week. I would like you to turn to Matthew 28 verse 20. subject of discussion in our church at all when we're here because of the gospel. Here is what Jesus says. Let me back up to verse 19, or verse 18 rather. Matthew 28 verse 18. Jesus says, uh, and Jesus came to, came and said to them, this is to the disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We make baptism a subject of discussion because Christ commanded it. In verse 19, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is called an ordinance. It is, it is a practice for the church that's been ordained by Christ. Um, we believe there are two ordinances. There's baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism is entrance, is, um, signifies entrance into the new covenant community. And the Lord's Supper, Supper signifies, it is a continual act that signifies Christ's death and resurrection for the saints alone. So, to answer your question, why are we making water such an issue? Because Christ commanded it. That's, that is the main reason why we talk about the subject of baptism. Not only did Christ command it, but it was carried out by the apostles from the very beginning. If you flip your Bible over to Acts 2, verse 37. Acts 2, verse 37, the apostle Peter is preaching the gospel. And... He says in verse 36, Let the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you were crucified. Now listen to how he instructs the people to respond to the gospel and how the people actually respond to the gospel. Verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter, and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promises for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls upon himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So, those who received the word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. When the apostle Peter, when they asked Peter, What shall we do? Peter responds, Repent and be baptized. So baptism as a command of Christ and an ordinance of Christ is something that the apostles consciously carried out. And how did these people actually respond? Verse 41, those who received the word were baptized. Not those who didn't receive the word. It was those specifically who received the word that were baptized. And so we see a pattern emerging where faith precedes baptism, or those who receive God's word are therefore baptized as a demonstration of faith and commitment to Christ. <clears throat> so, why is baptism even important? Why are we even talking about this? I hope you can see from these passages 
One in the Great Commission, and these are just two examples of, of many, but one in the Great Commission, one in, by the apostles, that this was actually commanded and practiced in Scripture. So we understand that Baptists understand baptism to be a matter of obedience, not just a matter of theological intrigue or a point of disagreement. We think it's a matter of obedience, and that's why we make it a subject of discussion. So that answers that. I hope that answers that question. Um, I, I don't. I don't pretend. To have covered every base on that issue, but I hope you can see at least from those two passages why I think baptism is important and why Baptists historically have thought baptism is important. It's, it's ingrained in the Great Commission, it's a command of Christ, and carried out by the apostles. So you, you might be saying, well, baptism isn't necessary for salvation. And I would agree with you. I hope you know that I agree with you. Baptism is not necessary for salvation, but it is a command of Christ. And Jesus said, teach them to observe all I have commanded you. We should never assume for ourselves or imply with our words that obedience to Christ is only important when salvation is on the line. We don't want to be a church that is only obedient to Christ when heaven or hell is on the line. Because that makes obedience actually a matter of self-preservation instead of discipleship, right? So whether or not this is a salvation issue is not the question, is not the right question. The right question is, was it commanded by Christ? And is it the pattern of Scripture or not? That's, that's the main issue. And Christ did not leave it up to me or to you to discern how important this issue should be for our church. He didn't leave us that decision. He said, do it. So we do it. No, it's not a salvation issue, but... What if, what if my wife told me to clean the house and do the dishes when she was gone? And I said to her, well, is this a divorce issue? If I don't do this, will you divorce me? And she said, well, no, I'm not going to divorce you if you don't do it. Well, I said, well, I'm not going to do it then. I don't have, then it's just, a matter of, it's just a matter of preference and my own personal opinion. Uh, you know, I don't need to do it. If it's not a divorce issue, if, not, if I'm not going to lose my relationship with you over it, then, you know, then don't be so angular about it. I, I submit to you that I would do the dishes and clean the house to love and help my wife, and therefore, and likewise, we submit to baptism to, to honor the king and his commands. No, it's not a salvation issue, but it is commanded. And you do have a relationship with Christ. And the way you grow in your relationship with Christ is not to ask, 
what is the least I can do in order to be saved, but what must I do to be the fullest disciple I can. The key phrase being, with all of my heart, all of my soul, all of my mind, and all of my strength. Not just the part of it, the part of me that secures my salvation. Again, I hope that's clear. I hope I'm coming off the right way. But this issue is important, and I don't want our church to be the kind of church that makes obedience to Christ a matter of preference. Another, another suggestion is, and I know many of you have been thinking about this issue and studying this issue, um, a pastoral caution for you is to beware of apathy by analysis. Apathy by analysis. I think sometimes we can analyze a topic so much and still not come to a sure, clear conviction on a matter. And what will happen is our convictions will become eroded due to frustration of not seeing things clearly. I would, I would encourage you to press on and strive for clear convictions on a matter. Now, I'm not suggesting that everything is clear, but I'm, I am cautioning you against that apathetic theological feeling that washes over you because you just can't come to firm conclusions. That just means you haven't come to firm conclusions yet. That's all that means. But over time, through greater study of Scripture, through reading, through conversation with the saints, um, I believe we can. So I would, just, I would just encourage you to not lose your faith in Scripture to lead you to clearer paths. And don't give in to apathy by analysis. So, baptism is not a salvation issue, but it is a command, and therefore we do it. That's the kind of disciple I want to be, and I hope that's the kind of church you want to be as well. Next thing I want to answer is, is this is really a two-part issue now. Number one, what is the theological meaning of baptism? I mean, what does it indicate or signify? If we can answer that question through Scripture, if we can demonstrate what the meaning of baptism is through scripture, then we will understand who should be baptized. The meaning will give us an answer as to the subject. Right? So I want to go through two passages with you. We could, we could be here all day, but two significant passages that I think clarify the meaning of baptism and therefore tell us who should be baptized. Let's turn our Bibles to Romans 6, 1 through 4. Romans 6, 1 through 4. What I'm trying to demonstrate through this passage is that baptism signifies 
a transition. It signifies a transition from living in the realm of sin to living in union with Christ. Baptism is a signifier of that transition. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into his death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. The good news of the gospel is that God has responded to sin with grace. Right? I mean, that, that's one way to put it. And so the Apostle Paul has been explaining this up to this point and is fielding an accusation that's out, out in the air. And the accusation is this. If God responds to my sin with grace, then why not sin? That grace may abound. I mean, if that's how God responds to sin, why not sin to get more grace? Do you see how absurd your gospel is, Paul? And in Romans 3.28, I think, I believe, Paul says that some slanderously accuse us of saying that we should sin, that grace should abound. So they're trying to reduce the gospel to absurdity here. And this is Paul's response. Romans 6, 1 through 4 is Paul's response to that accusation. What does he say? Well, first of all, notice how he does not answer that objection in verse 2. By no means... How can we who have died to sin still live in it? So what does Paul say? He, said, he doesn't say, well, you, you just shouldn't sin anymore. You know, it's a matter of morality. You, you just should not sin because you've been saved by the gospel. He doesn't say that. It's not a matter of should. Nor does he say, well, we should live with gratitude and service. Rather than, rather than do those things. He doesn't say that either. What does he say? He says something has happened to you. Verse 2. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? You have died to sin. Death is a picture, and we're going to get into Ecclesiastes in a few weeks. Oh, the amount of death I'll be talking about but it's good because it helps you live in light of God's gifts. Life is something to be received, not mastered. Anyhow, um, death is a decisive event, is it not? Death is an event that cuts a person off from the realm of the physical realm. I believe that death is when the soul leaves the body. The death that the Christian undergoes, though, is a death which cuts them off from the dominion of sin. It cuts you off from sin. So it's not, Paul says, you have died to sin. So to say, should we sin that grace should abound, is a non sequitur. 
It's not even the right question. Paul's answer essentially is that grace releases you from the soul-destroying power of sin. That's Paul's answer. Something has happened to you. You have died when you became a Christian. So, it's not a matter of should we sin anymore. It's you've been cut off to the realm where sin is your master. And this is why we emphasize discipleship and holiness in our church. Because now, those of us living with the Holy Spirit are actually able to follow Christ's commands in a way that we could never without Him. Now, and this is the real issue that concerns us today. What marks this decisive event of death to sin? What marks this transition from when I have been alive to sin to when I have died to sin? What is the marker of this transition period? Verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him by baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Wow. So you see, the Apostle Paul says, the death you died, it wasn't just a death you died. You actually joined Christ's death. And it's in union, it's in your union with Christ that you are cut off from the realm where sin is your master. The essence of salvation is that you have been united to Christ. So that all the benefits and even the spiritual Journey that is appended to his person is now applied to you, including his life, death, and resurrection. So, baptism marks the point at which we die to sin, the apostle said. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? So, baptism is the transition marker. From when you were alive to sin to when you were dead to sin. A wedding marks a marriage. That's, that's what a wedding does. It marks a marriage. So baptism marks a conversion. You could be married without a wedding. And you could be saved without baptism. But these are markers of transition. When I married Nydia, I died to the realm of anyone else, any other woman, and now I'm alive to her and her alone in my relationship. And so did you when you were married. When we were baptized, that is a signifier of that transition from dying to sin and living to Christ. So baptism in the mind of Paul is a transition marker. It is meant to mark the transition from the old life of sin to the new life in Christ. 
Now, if it is true, if what I just said is correct and true, that baptism is a transition marker, then it is theologically and pastorally inappropriate to baptize an infant because they have not made this transition where they've been dead to sin and now are alive to Jesus Christ. They've not yet made the transition. So the, the problem with our Presbyterian brothers in their theology, as far as I can see, is that they apply, they apply the sign to those for whom it is not true yet. Bobby Jameson writes, Pedo-baptism applies the sign of union with Christ to those who are not united to Christ yet. And thus it divorces the sign from the reality. Divorces the sign from the reality. What about wedding rings? We don't put rings on our finger in hope that we'll be married one day. Right? We put a wedding ring on our finger because this act testifies to my love and commitment and covenant to this person. Likewise, we don't baptize in hopes that it will be true of this person one day. That's not how the Apostle Paul describes it. He describes it as that singular event, that transition marker, which marks death to sin and life to Christ. So, baptism is a physical act which is meant to correspond to an objective spiritual reality in Christ. And that implies to me in the strongest possible way that baptism should be reserved for a believer and a believer alone. It is meant to mark the faith of the believer, not the faith of parents. So, again, that's the what and the who. What is baptism? It's a picture of one's present union with Christ. Who then should be baptized? Those who are united to Christ through faith. Thus excluding infants from baptism. As I said last week, I think we have great hope that infants may be in the number of the elect. But that doesn't mean we therefore put water on them and imply something about their spiritual state that is not necessarily true. So, what is baptism in union with Christ? Who should be baptized? Those who are united with Christ. So, now I want to remove to more a subjective note. So we know the objective reality of baptism corresponds with union with Christ. That's the objective reality. But what is the subjective, personal reality of baptism? I mean, what is baptism meant to say about a person's spiritual posture towards God? What is it there? What do, what do I do when I'm being baptized? I invite you to turn now to 1 Peter 3, verse 20 and 21. 
So, what is the personal and subjective significance of baptism? 1 Peter 3, 20-21 speaks about the sons of God who did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter is using imagery. We just got uh, done with First Peter, but he's using imagery, the imagery of the ark, and he's, he's um, applying it to baptism. Both the ark and baptism, he's saying, are, are a passing through waters because of God's grace. And he says that baptism now saves you. Now, what is it? What is it about baptism that's saving? Sometimes people are tripped up by this verse, but let's just look at it closely. What is it about baptism that is saving? He says, "Not as a removal of dirt from the body." In other words, not the physical part. It's not the physical act. Water simply passing over our body and removing dirt doesn't actually cleanse us. So it saves you, not, not the physical act that saves you. What is it? The inward appeal. But as an appeal to God for a clean conscience. In other words, Peter describes the physical act of baptism as an expression of the inner desire to be cleansed from guilt. So the physical act testifies to the inner appeal to God to be cleansed from guilt. So Peter defines baptism as a physical expression of a spiritual appeal. It's for cleansing. I've said this many times before, but today evangelicals have a habit of saying, ask Jesus into your heart. And if you do that, you'll be saved. And I'm not necessarily against that, though I think Maybe that could lead to some unhealthy patterns, but in the first century, they weren't asking Jesus into their heart at all. They were repenting and identifying with Jesus through baptism. So baptism is the way God gave us to commit to him. Not, not necessarily by saying a prayer, but by placing faith in him, and by demonstrating that faith in baptism. This is why, again, this is why we reserve the act for a believer. Because it's meant to demonstrate repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That's why we reserve the act for a believer. Because of what it is. It's an appeal to God for a clean conscience. Now, at the risk of stating the obvious here, um, you could not apply this passage to an infant. An infant doesn't have the, the, the mental or spiritual capacities to consciously appeal to God for a clean conscience yet. Right? <laughs> I, and and I've, I've heard some who, who imply that maybe they do, and I'm going to talk about that next week. 
But I, I infants just don't have that ability, and I think reality testifies to that. So let me say something. I I I think this is right. What I'm saying, I believe what I'm about to say is true. But as a a church that believes baptism should be applied to a believer according to Romans 6, 1 Peter 3, some other passages, but I've just given you those two. In our view, we wouldn't accept a Presbyterian baptism or a Lutheran baptism or, or a Catholic infant baptism. For the same reason, we wouldn't accept a Mormon baptism or a Jehovah's Witness baptism. Why? Because none of those were attended with faith in the gospel. Catholics baptize their infants. Presbyterians baptize their infants. Mormons baptize converts. None of those baptisms are done as an expression of faith in Jesus Christ and his true gospel. That's why we wouldn't accept those baptisms. Because baptism, it's not, it's not to say that baptism is not for an infant. It's just not for anyone who does not believe the gospel. Infants being a subset of those people. But also Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. And so therefore we wouldn't accept any baptism that wasn't a conscious appeal to God and union with Christ. I think that's right. So, we've talked about the object of meaning and the subject of meaning of baptism. The object of meaning of baptism is transition. You've been cut off from the realm where death is not, where sin is now your master, and you've been raised to walk in the newness of life of Jesus Christ. Subjectively, it's, an, it's a personal appeal to God. And in both instances, you can only apply baptism to a person who is actually placing their faith in Jesus Christ. It is the wedding ring. Let me talk about a marriage again. What about an arranged marriage? An arranged marriage. I know we don't do that in our country, but there are some, there are some that still do. Even in, a, in an arranged marriage, parents wouldn't give wedding rings to the children to signify that they will be married one day. Right? That, that wedding ring is a signifier of not of some future hope, even though they will be brought up consciously aware through their whole childhood that they will marry this person one day and will be tutored in that direction. Likewise, we don't apply baptism in hopes that a child will be saved one day, even though they will be brought up, we hope, to that belief. Baptism is not given to us in hopes that a child will be a believer or to express my hope that my child will be a believer. 
it's to express the child, the, uh, the, the person being baptized, their faith in Christ. It's not for me as the parent. It's for my child when he comes of age. So, in other words, baptism is there to not show the faith of parents, but to show the faith of the believer. I was talking with Jane last week, and I was, I was, we were talking about the fact, at least I said this, that children have inherited beliefs and assumed beliefs, but teenagers and young adults, that's when they form beliefs, right? And so we don't want to apply baptism to a young man or woman who have simply inherited my belief, we want that to be an expression of their own appeal to God and testify to the reality of their true union with Christ. And it's a great gift for a person to, when they come of age and full consciousness of the gospel, to be baptized and signify their union with Christ. So baptism is the initiatory rite of the believer. It's dying to the old life. It's raising to the walk in the newness of life with Jesus Christ. That's what it signifies. And I think that's, therefore, it tells us who should be baptized. I know there's a lot more that could be said. Um, I actually said that I would get into objections this week, but we're going to leave it there. Next week, I'm going to tackle, tackle, I'm going to address some objections that uh, an infant Baptist theologian might shoot at me. And that'll be the last of the baptism sermons. Um, but I do want this sermon series to kind of exist as a testament to what we are, what we believe about baptism as a church. We believe it's important, just to summarize, because Jesus Christ commanded it. And it, he didn't leave it up to you and me to decide how important it should be for us. He commanded it, so we do it. And I believe obedience should be done out of honor for the king, not not, it, it shouldn't just be to decide, is this a salvation issue? Right? That's, that's regardless. It's, did Christ command it? Yes, he did, so we do it. Then I talked about Romans 6, 1 Peter 3. Both of those describe baptism as an expression of current faith. An expression of the current, the objective metaphysical reality of being cut off from sin and united to Christ. And therefore, it should up be applied to those who are actually cut off from sin and united to Jesus Christ. Um, and so therefore, we baptize believers. Regardless of what we decide as a church going forward, that's what this church believes and will do. Um, but as far as, as membership, that's I hope you understand that's another issue. 
What we're talking about is matters of doctrine and principle. What we're talking about in the membership meetings is a matter of prudence and foreseeing possible dangers or, or opening up possible doors. We have a meeting on the 10th where we'll talk more about matters of prudence. But as, matter, as matters of doctrine, I hope I showed you today, or just gave you a taste for why we baptize believers and not unbelievers. So, let me just let me just say one more thing. Thirty seconds. Um, this is a secondary issue. The first order issue is the gospel, and I mentioned union with Christ. So, if there is anyone here who is wondering what union with Christ is, the good news of the gospel is that. Though the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Through his life, death, and resurrection, he has been your substitute. And now, if you place faith in Jesus Christ, he promises to take you to his heavenly kingdom. That is the gospel which could be expanded but I hope, I hope us addressing these issues about baptism will never overshadow the first order issue. I don't want to be a secondary issue church, but I do want to follow Christ's commands. And I hope you do too. Let's close in prayer.